Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you didn't read the book, you're about to get the movie or the TV show, really. The lead starts right now. We are just hours away from a showdown that Democrats hope will change the course of the Trump presidency. Former special counsel Robert Mueller is set to testify in the Hill tomorrow morning. This hour, some new reporting on Trump's mindset and the Democrats' plan to persuade the public that the president committed crimes. Remember the Tea Party? Well, apparently neither does he. The Trump White House striking a deal for a budget that blows the doors off spending limits as some conservatives in Congress look the other way. Plus, he has a blooper reel worthy of that Benny Hill theme song, and he's been called Britain's Donald Trump. What now for the so-called special relationship when Boris Johnson becomes the U.K. prime minister? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with the politics lead, former special counsel Robert Mueller, finally answering questions before Congress tomorrow. House Democrats, 88 of whom officially supported impeachment inquiry, hope that tomorrow's all-day testimony will persuade millions more Americans that President Trump committed crimes and is unfit for office. They know most Americans did not read the 448-page Mueller report, and they hope to bring it to life with damning sound bites from the former FBI director. Now, House Republicans, they hope this will be the final act for the special counsel's Russia investigation. They hope to convince you of one conclusion, case closed. The upcoming appearance is clearly on President Trump's mind. He brought it up today. How about this whole witch hunt that's going on? Should I talk about it for a second? The Russian witch hunt. They got nothing. Sources tell CNN that President Trump has expressed irritation over Mueller's testimony tomorrow before the House Judiciary Committee, which will focus on the obstruction of justice charges against the president, and the House Intelligence Committee, which will concentrate on attempted 2016 Russian election interference. The president has been spending the last several days discussing Mueller's upcoming testimony with aides and allies and complaining that Democrats simply will not let the investigation go, CNN has learned. Meantime, Democrats and Republicans on the Hill have been intensely preparing for the big day. But, as CNN's Manu Raju now reports for us, both the Department of Justice and Mueller himself are hoping to keep members of Congress focused only on what's in the Mueller report. Late drama on the eve of the most anticipated congressional hearing in decades. After former special counsel Robert Mueller Uh, made a last-minute request to allow his former deputy to be sworn in to answer questions. The GOP raising alarms, with the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, Doug Collins, saying doing so would undercut the committee's integrity. While Democrats agreed to allow the deputy, Aaron Zebley, to sit next to Mueller, a committee source told CNN the special counsel is expected to be the only one sworn in as a witness. The feud underscores the stakes ahead of Wednesday's testimony about Mueller's probe into Russian interference and the president's conduct. Many Democrats argue the hearing will change public perception about President Trump's alleged criminal conduct. Do you think that it could change the dial on impeachment? I think it certainly could. 
After Mueller requested guidance ahead of his testimony, the Justice Department responded by warning Mueller not to go beyond the boundaries of the report or talk about individuals who are not charged, which could include the president's son, Donald Trump Jr. I think it's incredibly arrogant of the department to try to instruct him as to what to say. It's part of the ongoing cover-up by the administration uh, to, to keep information away from the American people. Privately, both sides holding mock hearings to prepare. Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee focusing on five episodes of potential obstruction of justice, including Trump's alleged efforts to fire the special counsel, limit the investigation, and urge witnesses not to cooperate with federal prosecutors. Then the focus will shift to the House Intelligence Committee, where Democrats plan to ask Mueller about Trump's advanced knowledge in 2016 of the WikiLeaks email dump and campaign contacts with the Russians. Republicans want to train their focus on the origins of the probe and alleged bias on Mueller's team, while drilling home the point that no one on the Trump campaign was charged with conspiring with the Russians in 2016, as top Republicans in the Senate are dismissing the hearing. And I don't think anything Mueller can say that's going to change anybody's mind. No, I don't intend to be watching it. Now, as he walked into a mock hearing just moments ago, the Judiciary Committee chairman of the House, Jerry Nadler, just told me that the hearing will go on tomorrow. Now, he would not comment about this issue involving the deputies. He would not comment about that, but the hearing will go on tomorrow. And, Jake, this will almost certainly be the only time we will see the special counsel. The Senate Intelligence Committee chairman, Richard Burr, I asked him, will he bring in the special counsel? He said, if I wanted Mueller, I would have had him by now. I said, well, why not bring him in? He said he did a report. Jake. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Our team of Russia investigation experts uh, joins me now. And Evan, let me start with you. Uh, Mueller made this last-minute request to have his deputy, a guy named Aaron Zebley, sworn in for the hearing, though not, a, not as a witness, right? So what do you make of this all? Well, you know, I think it's not unusual for a witness to have, uh, in this case, uh, Zebley was his former chief of staff when uh, Mueller was running the FBI. And so, you know, you normally, you know, it's not abnormal for you to have someone sitting behind you when you don't have uh, the answer to something to, to, to sort of get help with the answer. I think it, it potentially helps uh, Mueller answer the questions more fully. It, it probably makes the hearing better. Um, but I think I can see why Republicans are, uh, Republicans are, are, are sort of raising some ruckus about it because they think it's changing the, the entire context of, of what's going to happen tomorrow. I, I actually think it's going to make it a better hearing because we're more likely to hear full answers. Uh, and uh, you know Robert Mueller. Yep. Democrats, House Democrats uh, in the Judiciary Committee certainly hope that this is going to help uh, change the tide and support for impeachment of President Trump because of the obstruction charges, potential obstruction charges. House Intelligence Committee, they want to educate the public. They want people to understand all the times the Russians reached out and all the times that they were greeted with willingness and then lies by the Trump team. How do you think Mueller's going to comport himself? I think you can look at two categories here. One is the factual category. That's why somebody I know, Aaron Zebley, would be there. Zebley is not only someone who will know a lot of facts. Two and a half years of an investigation, including stuff like phone, email, financial data. Not bad to have somebody else there trying to recall all that information. And from when I was in the Bureau, Zebley is cool and he's a made man. In other words, he's trusted. In terms of understanding what's happening in the investigation, facts, you'll get those. If the investigation starts to go political with questions like, don't you have a bunch of angry, angry Democrats working for you? That's when I want to watch because the director I work for doesn't do integrity questions. If they try to come after him, particularly Republicans on the issue of the integrity of the investigation, 
Watch the show. I'm going to get the, uh, the, the popcorn, the director. I, I keep calling him the director. The special counsel. Mm-hmm. He's always the director. The special you, counsel will go after him. And Neil Cottrell, the acting solicitor general under Obama, suggested uh, the three main questions that he thinks should be posed to, to Mueller. Quote, first, did your report find there was no collusion? Second, did your report find there was no obstruction? Third, did your report give the president complete and total exoneration. Those are the things that President Trump has claimed. Obviously, they don't exactly match up with the facts. How do you think he's going to answer? Uh, you know, I don't think that Bob Mueller is going to go far beyond what we've seen in the report. And I think that the report itself answers a lot of those questions for us. I mean, it, it wasn't that they found no obstruction. It's that he said he couldn't clear the president fully of any wrongdoing. And he didn't you know, feel like he was able to bring charges against him anyway. It's not that they found no collusion whatsoever. It's that they didn't find enough that it would rise to the level of a criminal prosecution. And so I think a lot of sort of those questions debunking the way the president frames that it's already out there. It's already in the report. It may be different to hear it from Bob Mueller's mouth, but I think between what he has said publicly so briefly and then what we saw from the Justice Department in terms of their letter made it very clear that in terms of the the substance, we should expect him to reiterate what is out there. Uh, And the president, the White House, they've been all over the map about the Mueller report. They've claimed it exonerated the president. They claim Mm -hmm. uh, that it's a hit piece, a a witch hunt. how are they going to do what, what's their response going to be tomorrow? I guess we you have know, no idea. Sources I've spoken with in the White House are basically looking at this as, look, it's not going to be a great day for us. We're going to pay attention. We're going to see what headlines come out of it. There will probably be some unseemly headlines uh, for the president. But the view is that they're going to quickly move on. Certainly, there is a sense of irritation, um, as our reporting indicates, among the president. I mean, he has indicated that publicly, calling it a witch hunt still. And, and behind the scenes as well. I, I talked to a source uh, recently who, who did indicate that, yeah, they're going to be paying close attention to it, briefing the president on what's going on, because as he has said publicly, he doesn't he isn't expected to watch all of it from beginning to end. Um, and I think they're just prepared for another day of bad headlines, but that they're, they believe that they're going to be able to move on from this. So how will Robert Mueller, in your view, your best guess since you know him, if somebody says, does your report claim that there was no obstruction, no conclusion, no collusion, a complete and utter exoneration of the president, uh, as President Trump said. Is that true, Special Counsel Mueller? Uh, let me play Robert Mueller. Let me answer that question on page 18 of the report. You'll see a reference to obstruction on page 72. You'll see a reference to Russian interference. I draw your attention to those pages. The facts that we presented there and the judgments we presented there are the same judgments I'd like to present to you today. Next question. Look, I, look, I do think, though, that even if Mueller says a lot of the stuff that's in the report, just having him say it mm-hmm. is important. Look, mm-hmm. I, when he made his nine-minute statement the other day, uh, now several weeks ago, Go right. I thought it was clarifying because a lot of us read the report and we were struggling with whether or not to interpret this as a, as a referral mm-hmm. to Congress, right, on the impeach on the impeachment issue, right, on the obstruction question. Mm-hmm. And I think the president's lawyers, everyone else, I certainly did after watching Mueller speak, him using so, just slightly different language. I think was clarifying to us, and and that's what we all interpreted it to be that it is sort of a referral. And I think it's in Congress's hands now to handle whether or not they want to do that. And I think that's what you're going to see tomorrow, is you're going to see some clarifying language. All right. What questions do lawmakers need to ask Robert Mueller tomorrow? We're going to talk to a former federal prosecutor who worked closely with him. Then Joe Biden just spoke as he tries to stop a political fight before it erupts on the stage at next week's debate. Stay with us. We are just hours away until one of the most anticipated testimonies ever on Capitol Hill. 
Special Counsel Robert Mueller will be questioned by the House Judiciary Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. The Justice Department guidance that Mueller requested reiterated that he is bound by the confines of what is in his 448-page report. So what might be the keys to questioning Mueller? Preet Bharara, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, has worked closely with Mueller in the past and has some insights for us. Preet, thanks so much for joining us. What sure. are the top questions you want answered, and, and how would you advise lawmakers to ask them so that Mueller will actually answer them? Well, there are a couple of unknowns here, right? One is um, not fully unknown, but partially unknown, is how forthcoming is Bob Mueller going to be? Uh, I also worked in the Senate Judiciary Committee and saw Bob Mueller testify live a number, on a number of occasions, and he's pretty forthright, uh, and he's not evasive, and he doesn't filibuster, uh, unlike some other uh, witnesses you might see that come before the Congress. But he has indicated very clearly, uh, as, about as clear as you can, that he has no interest in being there. He doesn't want to become uh, you know, either a pawn or a pinata, and he doesn't really want to answer questions uh, that drive a wedge between him and the department uh, or that go beyond the report. So my advice in that circumstance, uh, even more so than usual, is that lawmakers should ask crisp, clear questions that don't characterize things in a way that causes Bob Mueller not to want to answer them. So, for example, you know, if lawmakers start asking things like, did uh, Attorney General Bill Barr lie uh, when he um, did his summary of the report, or did he mislead, you know, characterizations like that, we might agree with them, and maybe they are true, but Bob Mueller is going to want to stay very, very far away from that. Simple, open-ended questions also, I think, are going to be a problem. Um, I agree with, with what Neil Katyal, the former solicitor, uh, acting solicitor general, said about some version of clear questions that go at this distortion that's been promoted by the president and his allies, that the report exonerates him, that the report said no collusion, that the report said no, corrupt, no uh, obstruction. Uh, you should get at those things. And you have Bob Mueller uh, talking about it in a clear and concise way that people will be able to see. So those are among the things that I would recommend. So, but you point out that he is almost a, a reluctant witness. Um, the Justice Department wrote Mueller a letter saying he's limited by the four corners of the report. Mueller specifically requested that guidance from DOJ. He, he specifically requested that he be subpoenaed to testify tomorrow. Do you think that uh, that is to give him cover? I mean, why, why do that? I, I, think, I think partially. I think uh, not only is he almost a reluctant witness, I would delete the word almost. Um, he is a reluctant witness. I think he had no... Uh, he, he did that press conference a few weeks ago with the clear intention to have that substitute for any future appearance before Congress. He does not want to testify. He does not want to be involved in the circus. He's been in Congress before, uh, you know, 80 some odd times. Nothing before that he's experienced is anything like what he's going to get now in terms of pure partisanship, um, in terms of, uh, you know, people wanting to make the case that they want to make. You know, it, it's unclear that he's going to say anything at all. I, I think you're largely going to hear answers to questions with him making a reference to the report. You know, look at the report. I refer you to the report. Look at the report. One thing that I would like to see him answer, uh, and this idea of what's beyond the scope of the report and what's not, is, it seems a little bit in some contexts silly to me. Obviously, Republicans are going to ask him strong and tough questions about the integrity of the investigation, mm -hmm. um, the, the scandal with Peter Strzok, he should answer those, and he should explain why he acted how he acted. None of that is within the, the, the four corners of the report. <laughs> but even the people who are saying he should stick to the report want answers to those questions. So I think what will be very important is not just the things he says affirmatively that are in the report and how he came about those conclusions, but also defending the integrity of the men and women who are on the special counsel team who have pretty much so far been undefended by their boss. One of the most significant decisions Mueller made was to not subpoena President Trump. Uh, he said in the report that the president's Written answers were, quote, inadequate. 
Um, and of course, we know that the questions and answers in the written submitted questions didn't deal at all with anything after inauguration. In other words, didn't deal with anything having to do with potential obstruction of justice. Do you expect Mueller will describe why he decided not to subpoena the president? I mean, he, he addressed that in the report, uh, not at great length, but at some length. He talked about how it would be time consuming and it would take a, you know, uh, a court battle, probably multiple court battles, if the president chose, as we expected him to, uh, to try to resist coming to testify. And look, I, I actually don't fault Mueller on this as much as some other people. He clearly, to my mind, made a decision that he wanted to be done by a certain time. A lot of pressure for him to be done. You don't want this thing to bleed into the election year and get close to the election of 2020. They had to have made the determination that if they sought to compel the president to testify, that that court battle could have raged on so long that everything else would be held up once you go down that road. Everything else would be held up until the resolution of that question. That could have potentially put us into the summer or fall of 2020. Meanwhile, no report, no, uh, no conclusion on Russian interference or anything else. And I think they made a decision that even at the end of that period of time, the president could still take the fifth, I suppose, that, that all things considered, uh, they chose the lesser evil of the two options in their minds, and they decided to cut their losses and issue the report now and not seek that testimony. All right, Preet Bharara, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Sure. I'm old enough to remember when Republicans were busy railing against government spending. My, how the times have changed. Stay with us. Now we owe $15 trillion, going to $22 trillion, and they didn't cut enough. So this doesn't solve the problem. And that's the big thing. It doesn't solve the problem. The money lead that was then private citizen Trump in 2011, sounding the alarm, harping on a budget deal made under President Obama. But now President Trump is on track to do the same thing, ignoring All that past talk about fiscal responsibility and the need to cut spending and focus on reducing the deficit. Now he's applauding a new deal by congressional leadership. Their plan would let debt levels keep soaring well beyond a $22 trillion. And as CNN's Abby Phillip now reports for us, President Trump is not the only one who seems to be shrugging off the old days of the Tea Party. I'm confident we will. Congressional leaders projecting confidence that a two-year budget deal will have enough votes to pass. But some lawmakers are holding their breath that President Trump will stay behind it. We always hold our breath until something gets signed into law. Trump tweeting Monday night that the bipartisan plan had no poison pills and was a real compromise in order to give another big victory to our great military and vets. But there was no mention of it in his rambling speech today at a conservative team conference. The president's social media endorsement aimed at easing some concerns on Capitol Hill that he might back away from the deal at the last minute. I think it's a a deal that we'll get through. It isn't everything we hoped for, but it got through the debt ceiling. The deal pushes off another fight over the budget and debt until after the 2020 election and authorizes $1.37 trillion in spending each year for the next two years. Republicans touting the $45 billion increase in military spending. From a military point of view, it's much needed. It's the best I think we could do. And Democrats satisfied with the $56 billion in non-defense spending increases. But nothing in the deal addresses the federal deficit, which is nearing $1 trillion. Cutting spending around here is like going to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody's quite ready to take the trip. Some conservatives not happy with the increased spending and ballooning deficit are already rejecting the compromise. Do you like it? Are you going to vote for it? (laughs) I like it. 
So the president's aides are trying to tamp down a conservative rebellion over this bill by emphasizing that even though there is no money set aside specifically for the wall, there are also no restrictions on money in this bill being repurposed for the purpose of rebuilding the wall and building new wall at the border. Jake. All right. Abby Phillip at the White House. Thanks so much. There are some Republicans sounding the alarm about this budget deal, but others sound like this. From a military point of view, it's much needed. It's the best I think we could do. Democrats exist. They run the House. It wouldn't be the one I would have written, but you have to, in a place like this where we have a divided government, try and get the best possible deal you can. So CNN's Chris Saliza wrote today, quote, the Tea Party was born February 19th, 2009. It died officially July 22nd, 2019. Mary Catherine, do you agree? I think it may be a delayed obituary. Um, <laughs> look... <laughs> I think it's clear that we've established there's no real match for me here uh, on the uh, on the with the parties and fiscal conservatives as a as a fiscal conservative gal. You have to settle for like you used to have a party that was like a boyfriend who sort of pretended to like the thing you were into every now and then. And then another one that's like now honest, but like we're not into any of your ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we've dispensed with the pretending on the Republican side, essentially. And the irony is that one of the reasons that you got Donald Trump, which is this unorthodox character in American politics, is because people were so fed up with neither Democrats nor Republicans doing what they said, but they ended up voting in a guy who definitely was not going to do any of the reining in of spending, none of the entitlement reforms, because he straight up said it. It was an abdication of that responsibility, and it will remain so. It's amazing, though. If you, if you had said to me three years ago, hey, Larry Kudlow is going to be the chief uh, economic <laughs> advisor. Mick Mulvaney, yeah. uh, one of the leaders of the Tea yeah. Party, is going to be uh, the president's chief of staff. And they're going to cut these budget deals that are that basically could be cut under a, pre- a Democratic president with a Democratic House and Senate. Well, well, Trump has never said that this was something that well, he said that he cared about this in the past, but it was never really his passion. Right. And he didn't come into <laughs> office on this. And I think what it also shows is that maybe the public doesn't really care that much about this. I I remember during the Tea Party days, uh, the heyday, there would be people just, you know, crying and talking about their grandkids and they're going to have to pay these debts. But now people are kind of shrugging, and I guess they're saying the grandkids can pay it and we'll work it out on the next side. And and Jeff, in in 2016, when asked how long it would take him as president to eliminate the U.S. debt, then-candidate Trump told The Washington Post, quote, I would say over a period of eight years. Well... We're a few years into that, and uh, it doesn't look like we're headed in that direction. We're certainly not headed in that direction. In fact, we're headed in the opposite direction. But you mentioned Mick Mulvaney. He was not involved in these um, uh, talks at all with Speaker Pelosi. I actually caught up with Speaker Pelosi um, on on Monday afternoon as this was happening. And I asked her on Monday evening how this worked out. It seemed to be so smooth compared to most deals. And it was because she said she was working with Steven Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. She said there were two overriding principles, the president's fear of rocking the stock market and hurting the borrowing authority. So if Mick Mulvaney had been involved in these negotiations, perhaps it wouldn't have gone so smoothly. But look, he owns it. He signs off on it. He's the chief of staff. But it is uh, hard to imagine that this would have happened under a Democratic administration without the Tea Party and others crying about it. Deficits matter except when a Republican's president. And and, uh, take a listen to Larry Kudlow, uh, the president's top economic advisor, just today. Right now, jobs are booming and consumer spending is really booming. So that bodes very well. And the president himself has said, uh, if he's reelected, he will probably come down much tougher uh, on spending. So he'll take it seriously in the second term. Yeah, right. 
Uh, yeah, hard stuff always I, I am, Yeah, I mean, because <laughs> right. I mean, the president has so much power. I, the thing about it is, is that th- this has been a long-running issue where Republicans always accuse Democrats of being the big spenders, and then act like you know they 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 wouldn't be the big spenders when they're in power, and then they end up being bigger spenders than the Democrats were. I mean, this happened in the Bush administration. Um, you know, so I think that it's never really been about the spending. It's it's about the fact that there's a Democrat in power. And they don't like the priorities that they're spending money on. And so they're complaining about it. But they're not I don't think I honestly don't think they've ever been serious about it. Now, there are people like Mary Catherine who are serious about it. But I don't think the party itself has really been particularly serious about it because it's something that they just use to bludgeon Democrats with. And it it is interesting, though, because twenty two trillion dollars. I mean, at some point, that's some of that is going to have to be paid down. And yeah. your children, a my debt, children. And debt crisis will cometh, right? There, yeah, at there some is, point. You can't play with fake future money forever, and embracing that ideology will lead you to mm-hmm. that place. And the, and the interest on the debt also consumes so much of the federal budget that we cannot spend on other items. Everyone stick around. The president may be done with that budget battle, but he just started another fight. This one involves his home state. We'll explain. We have some breaking news in our politics lead now for you. President Trump sued this afternoon to try to stop his tax returns from being released. He's filing a lawsuit against New York state officials and the House Ways and Means Committee. The president and his legal team are also calling for the court to block a brand new New York state law passed to help Congress get a hold of his tax returns. Let's bring in CNN's Christina Leshing. Christina, what are the president's lawyers arguing here? They're arguing that this is nothing more than political retribution. Just some background here, Jake. Lawmakers in New York passed a law that would allow them to hand over his state tax returns, uh, Trump's state tax returns, over to Congress. And what the lawyers are saying is essentially this violates his First Amendment protections against congressional investigations into Trump as a private citizen and that the state tax returns won't help Congress in its stated duty of overseeing the IRS, which is why Congress says it wants his federal tax returns. But let me tell you what's really going on here. These are not new legal arguments from the Trump camp. This is Trump hitting back in a position that he feels that he's strong on. His attorney today giving CNN uh, this statement, which I think you got from from Seculo, the harassment tactics lack a legitimate legislative purpose. The actions taken by the House and New York officials are nothing more than political retributions, Jake. And this comes on the heels of Trump winning two other court battles Uh, One from D.C. and Maryland on the anti-corruption case, the the emoluments case, and the other, a a court siding with Trump to basically stop or pause Democratic subpoenas for financial information from the Trump organization. So Trump feeling really strong right now and hitting while he thinks that he's strong. And, Christina, the New York attorney general uh, responded to this lawsuit. Uh, What is that? That's right. She's look, she ran on cracking down on Trump. She's very upfront about it. Letitia James, she says President Trump has spent his career hiding behind lawsuits. But as New York's chief law enforcement officer, I can assure him that no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. So sounds like a battle here. Look, I think it's just a matter of time before the American people see Trump's tax returns. The question is, can he hold off until the next election? All right, Christina Leshy, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You might want to call it Joe Biden's pre-buttle, the plan he released today, hoping to stop attacks next week during the CNN debate. Spoiler alert, it's not going to work. Stay with us. 
Our 2020 lead now. We are just one week out from CNN's Democratic debates. And today, ahead of the showdown, former Vice President Joe Biden is unveiling a new criminal justice reform plan, a plan he hopes might deflect attacks from that controversial 1994 crime bill that he wrote 25 years ago. But 2020 rival Senator Cory Booker quickly fired back, telling Biden, quote, you created this system. And as CNN's Jessica Dean now reports for us, this is all a sign of what's to come when the two are standing next to each other on the debate stage next week. Former Vice President Joe Biden today unveiling his criminal justice reform plan. I'm amazed how far we've come, but I know how much further we have to go. The rollout comes as Biden is set to share the debate stage next week with Senators Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, both of whom have aggressively hit his record on the issue, particularly his role in crafting the 1994 crime bill, which critics say led to an era of mass incarceration. I supported the bill. I will accept responsibility for what went right, but I will also accept responsibility for what went wrong. Biden's new plan includes a number of recommendations from congressional black caucus members and seeks to reduce the number of people in prison while also reducing crime by creating a $20 billion grant program aimed at pressuring states to eliminate mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent crimes and incentivize inmates to complete educational and rehabilitation programs retroactively eliminating the disparity between sentences for crack and powder cocaine and decriminalizing marijuana use. Booker's response, quote, Joe Biden had more than 40 years to get this right. The proud architect of a failed system is not the right person to fix it. It was hurtful. As they've done during the campaign, Harris and Booker could take direct aim at Biden's record on the issue when they meet in Detroit for the debate. I think it's only right that he talk about everything from his uh, support of the 1994 crime bill, uh, which was one of the uh, sort of jet fuel to mass incarceration, uh, all the way to his stance on busing. That 1994 crime bill, um, it it did contribute to mass incarceration in our country. One of the key components of this bill that the campaign believes stands out is its focus on juvenile justice. They want to invest a billion dollars in programs like the Youth Empowerment Project here in New Orleans. Biden spoke here today. Those uh, projects speak to re-entry from the juvenile justice system and also mentorship and education. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean in New Orleans, thank you so much. Let's chew over this, uh, Kirsten. Uh, Biden is going to be flanked uh, uh, a week from Wednesday by uh, Senator Harris and Senator Booker. Will unveiling this aggressive, progressive uh, criminal justice reform uh, proposal, will that allow him to deflect? No. No. Uh, I don't think that they're going to allow him to deflect on this. The the view is that he, as as Cory Booker was saying, he's the architect of the system. That's sort of what they're hanging around his neck. And so whatever he does today, I don't think is going to change what's happened over the last 40 years. Um, the thing about it is, of course, for the you know recent history, he was working for Barack Obama. So it's kind of implicitly a criticism of Barack Obama, too. I mean, they have to consider that because it's not like Joe Biden could have come out and, and, and changed this, this system while he was under Obama unless Obama wanted to do it. And really, that's the time period when I think Democrats have been getting more and more serious about this issue. So I think, you know, it's fair to hold him accountable, absolutely. Um, but I and I, I just think that they have to be realistic about uh, where the whole Democratic Party was, not just Joe Biden. Is there a risk uh, for Cory Booker or Kamala Harris in doing this again? Because uh, Kamala Harris was very aggressive last debate. It, it definitely helped her in terms of poll numbers, in terms of fundraising. Um, but you know, there's always the risk that you attack somebody too much. You look opportunistic. 
I think there's absolutely a risk. And so many voters I have spoken to in the last uh, three or four weeks since that debate have said, you know, we like Joe Biden. We inherently believe that he was trying to do the right thing. So I think it's his reaction is probably more interesting, you know, how he deflects and moves on and makes the argument that he is a forward looking candidate. But to be uh, you know, fair and accurate here, uh, Senator Booker is hanging all this on the former vice president. At the fact, the CBC, the majority of the CBC, the Congressional supported Black Caucus. this crime bill. President Clinton signed it. Most of the uh, majority mayors, the black mayors at the time, supported it as well. So I think it's incumbent on Joe Biden to pivot forward on this. He was not very agile in doing so at the first debate in Miami. But sure, there is a risk here of Cory Booker, particularly where he is sitting in the polls right now. And he, of course, promised to be all kind, all nice. Uh, this isn't exactly what he promised. Yeah. But look, it hasn't worked out that well for him so far. And Ayesha, one senior uh, Biden campaign official told CNN about this uh, strategy, Biden's campaign strategy, quote, he talks about that he knows a number of people are going to try to weaponize his service in Congress against him. And I know some people in this race would like to believe he never served as vice president to President Obama, but he's proud of his record. As he noted, he didn't always get everything right. I thought that was interesting. Weaponize his service in Congress. I mean, you're allowed to discuss somebody's congressional record. Well, I mean, it's his record, and it's what he's running on, right? His service, not just under President Obama, but in Congress. So I, I, I want to hear what, uh, what former Vice President Biden will have to say about how he got to this point. So you were the architect of a bill that did include mandatory minimums. I know he said there were things in there that he didn't like. But how do you get to this point where you want to end all mandatory minimums. Like, so how did that evolution happen? And I think that he needs to explain that on that debate stage to say, look, yes, that's happened then, but this is where I am now. I also think even with president, with president Obama, when you talk to criminal justice advocates, there are people who felt like he didn't do enough. Even when you talk about clemency and commutations now, uh, Obama did a record number of them, but Criminal justice advocates felt like he could have done more. And I, there's um, something else that's going to be going on stage uh, a week from Wednesday. A week from Tuesday is one debate. A week from Wednesday uh, is another. And that is Tulsi Gabbard uh, will be on stage, Congressman Tulsi Gabbard. And she'll probably be aiming some fire, uh, rhetorical fire, at Senator Kamala Harris. Because she just said on Fox Sports Radio the following. Well, Kamala Harris is not qualified to serve as commander-in-chief. And I can say this from a... Uh, a personal perspective as a soldier. She's got no background or experience in foreign policy, uh, and she lacks the temperament that is necessary for a commander-in-chief. Now, we should point out that Harris's uh, communications director responded on Twitter saying, quote, definite hard pass on taking national security advice from Assad's cheerleader. But they're going to be on the same stage, and I'm expecting that Tulsi Gabbard's going to make this accusation that she, Senator Harris doesn't have the temperament or experience. Well, and Gabbard's performance, I think, in the last debate was very solid, even though this part about Syria and Assad is a real vulnerability for her. As to Biden, this is a real vulnerability for him because he not only supported these things, he spearheaded uh, many of them that he now totally rejects. And I think you're right. He does need to speak to that evolution. He's tried inoculation via president, his friendship with President Obama, which people aren't that interested in as, a, as an argument, via policy is what he's trying now. And finally, he needs to do it via performance because he did not do it last time. He needs to have a counterpunch. And you just did a great little pivot that maybe Vice President Biden could learn how to do. <laughs> you did Tul Tulsi... To, to Biden. I'm just best. saying, well, I'm just saying some people should take note, the, the people who will be debating next week. And Britain is bracing tonight for Boris, a look at the next prime minister that many are comparing to President Trump. Stay with us. Our world lead now, he speaks with bluster, has a propensity to gaff. 
He fancies himself a bit of an unorthodox politico, and he certainly lacks traditional decorum. Boris Johnson, the new UK prime minister, will officially replace Theresa May tomorrow. And as CNN's Bianca Nobila reports, Johnson has a long history of stirring up controversy. The title of Britain's prime minister is a grand one, held by Sir Winston Churchill. We cannot aim at anything less than the union of Europe as a whole. And Margaret Thatcher. We are living in historic times. Now, Britons are bracing for Boris. As the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. The pro-Brexit Conservative, Boris Johnson, will take the helm after a self-described dud campaign. Deliver, unite and defeat was not the perfect acronym for an election campaign, since unfortunately it spells dud. But they forgot the final E, my friends. E for energise. And I say, I say to all the doubters, dude. We are going to energise the country. We're going to get Brexit done. Unlike Donald Trump, to whom he's often compared, the dutifully dishevelled politician has a long history in politics. Johnson has served as Member of Parliament, Mayor of London and Foreign Secretary. Still, an unsettling history of hang-ups looms large over his career. He's tackled PR disasters before. But now as PM, his reputation will get more serious scrutiny. Johnson has insulted Muslim women, the people of Papua New Guinea, black people and President Obama with racist comments. Diplomatically deplorable gaffes, alleged infidelity and untruths have been commonplace. There is a, such a, a, a rich thesaurus now of things that I've said, somehow misconstrued, uh, that it would really take me too long uh, to engage in a full global itinerary of, of apology to, to all concerned. And in 2015, all concerned included Donald Trump. Then a cross-the-pond political candidate plagued by, well, alleged infidelity, racist remarks and lies. I wouldn't want to expose Londoners to any unnecessary risk of meeting Donald Trump. He's since changed his tune and now they're moving forward as two of the most powerful, unpredictable politicians on earth. They call him Brent Trump and people are saying that that's a good thing, that they like me over there. That's what they wanted. Jake, tomorrow Boris Johnson will officially become Prime Minister. He will go to Buckingham Palace, have a formal audience with the Queen and be invited to form a government. Soon after that, he'll move into 10 Downing Street and he'll have to hit the ground running because he'll have to grapple with Brexit, chart a course for how to deal with the negotiations, de-escalate tensions in the Persian Gulf and, of course, forge those key relationships with the European Union and the United States. All right, Bianca Nabila, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.